Really excited to have this next guest on the podcast from the great group Poco. This is Rusty Young. He's an awesome steel guitar player. He plays a multitude of different instruments. We hear some great stories about Poco and how they got started up until now. Some really funny stories in there as well. Really enjoyed this conversation a lot. Uh, one of my great all-time favorite groups, Poco. Don't forget, if you're listening uh, on iTunes or if you're listening on Spotify, any of those great platforms, make sure you give us a five-star rating. We really would appreciate that. Also, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, make sure you hit the subscribe button. You can see all the upcoming episodes. Also, don't forget to thank our sponsors as well from uh, Morning Bus Coffee, company based out of Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, you can find their great coffee online, morningbuzzcoffee.buzz, owned by a couple of great musicians, uh, great fellows, and make sure you support them. Also, Music City Canada, based out of London, Ontario, and they have some awesome equipment there you can buy. Uh, they have everything you can ever imagine. Uh, they'll ship right to you, musiccitycanada.com. Also, Stickman Clothing Company, based out of Regina, Saskatchewan. Awesome clothing wear, and they'll ship to you as well. And they're owned by musicians and great friends, and they have some really cool stuff. So Stickman Clothing Company, check that out. All right, this is Rusty Young. Awesome conversation from the supergroup Poco. All right, we are here with Rusty Young. It's really nice to have you here on the podcast. I'm a big fan, and uh, you're in Missouri now. How are things in Missouri? Uh, well, you know, somebody has to live here, so <laughs> I drew the short stick. It's okay. We have a beautiful place, and it's we're out of civilization here. We're in a cabin in the Mark Twain National Forest. So that part of it's really great because... Um, you know, being a traveling, touring musician can be really hectic. You're in crowds all the time, and you know, people tugging at your sleeve all the time. Yeah. So, so when we get off the road, we can come back here. I'm about two hours or so southwest of St. Louis. Okay. So, so uh, you know, we get off the road and we need to chill out. Uh, this is like the perfect place to do it. There. Yeah. No neighbors, no, no anything. It, the only bad part is there's no civilization. The good part is there's no civilization, and then there, the bad part is that there's no yeah. civilization. So would you be around Springfield? Um, would that no. Be no. That's no, we're, uh, I don't know if you, you know I-44 that runs down the middle of Missouri? Yeah. Well, there's a, like there's Cuba, there's Rolla, those little cities down there. Uh, we're, we're about 20 minutes away from those. Perfect. Okay. 20 minutes east. It's nice uh, to have a spot where you can go and just escape everything. Um, it's nice to have. Well, we try. We yeah. try. It's hard these days to escape <laughs> things, but uh, we so, do our best. So how are you coving, uh, coping, coping, I should say, coving. <laughs> That's a new word. I should actually publicize it. <laughs> coving during COVID. Yeah. Coping during COVID. How has that uh, been for you with, uh, you know, not touring, I imagine, and not playing as much and, and all that? Is it? It been a yeah. different thing for you? Not playing, not playing at all. Uh, we played, I think, maybe two or three shows in 2020 is all. Yeah. And uh, we're not set to start again until June. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that happens. Missouri is, is really lame with a lot of stuff. One of them is getting uh, vaccinated. Oh, yeah. There's, it's just not available here. And uh, I, I turn 75 next month. I mean, I'm, I'm in a good category to get the vaccine. Yeah. And uh, there's, it's just not here. It, it is not here. And so uh, 
that's a little frustrating and worrisome because I do want to go out and play and I can't do it if I don't have a vaccine shot. Um, so, uh, you know, that's once again, part of the, of the good and the bad of being here. Yeah. But it's it's been okay. Mary and I, you know, at first we got a lot of things done around here because there's yeah. nothing else to do. And then about six months into it, we stopped doing that. And now everything looks just as bad as it did before we started <laughs> fixing everything up. So, uh, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, I'm going to be interested. I'm going to go to Nashville for about a week before we start and rehearse with the band because I haven't really sung in a year now, yeah. almost a year. And, uh, you, you know, it's the kind of thing that you have to keep doing in order to, to be good at it. And so uh, I'm a little concerned about just, you know, not playing for a year my chops remembering all those songs and all those parts and all those harmonies and uh and then physically being up to the task so it's been a, it's it's been hard because i didn't want to, at this point in my life i didn't want it to be jerked out of it like we have been yeah like all, everybody has all my musician friends have and uh so it, that, that's been a tough pill to swallow because i i it's like sitting here now you know i've got there must be 30 guitars behind me on the walls and everywhere. And every time I come down here, this is where I hang out, I can hear them whispering, you're not playing me. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, that part's tough. Yeah, and actually playing in a band and just playing at home is two different things. And Way different. Yeah. So, you know, you're not going to sit at home and practice harmony parts and it's just not as fun. Yeah. Um, it's neat to, you know, pick up an instrument and doodle around and, and, and yeah. play a bit, but it's not, it's not having the band together. That's a totally different, different thing. It is a totally different thing. So I, I miss it. I'm, I'm anxious. It's funny because Mary and I, you know, for the past few years, we'd be leaving to go to the airport and she'd look at me and she'd say, I don't want to go. I want to stay home. And now she's going, I want to get out of here. Can we go back on the road? <laughs> it's been interesting. I've talked to a few people on, on my latest podcast in the last few, and it's a real mixed bag. I've had a, a few people say that they've enjoyed being at home so much that they're not too anxious to get back on the road again. And, wow! Yeah, and from surprising people, um, and then you get the opposite, you know, where you're just like, yeah, I just can't, can't wait. But um, you know, I think some people have been on the road for so long that they never experienced that much time at home before, and <laughs> some people. Like I haven't. It. I, I haven't had you know two months off since she's the '60s. Um, and, you know, music's all I've ever done. My, it's been my whole life. I started playing professionally when I was 12, living in Colorado. Yeah. And it's all I've done. And I've done it, I've done it a lot and on a, on a big scale and on a small scale. And it's so much part of life for me. It's like breathing. Yeah. And um, for it to be taken away is, is nuts. I, I don't relish not going out. I don't relish staying home. I'm going to be like Willie Nelson, I think. And I'm going to play until I fall down. <laughs> True. I really enjoyed it. And as long as your audience enjoys it, as long as yeah. folks want to come hear, hear the band. Yeah, exactly. One question I want to ask you right away, because I had uh, sent a promo picture of you, and you're leaning over a gorgeous showbud, uh, Steel. Uh, yeah. Tell me about that showbud. It's beautiful. That is probably the most valuable showbud or steel guitar on the planet. It's uh, it was made for me by Shot. You know, I was uh, showbud made all my guitars through the '70s and '80s. Yeah. 
And uh, I was good friends with David, his son, and, and shot, and would go to the, the factory every time I was in town. And uh, so it, it, when Legend hit and was such a huge success, he said, I'm going to make you a guitar. He, he made all my guitars. I'm going to make you a guitar, a very special guitar. And so he, he made this just beautiful show bed with the horse logo yeah. in Mother of Pearl on the front and a ruby eye. Wow. And uh, it... David told me that it was the very last showbud that Shot worked on himself. Wow! And uh, he gave me that, and I, I, needless to say, haven't taken it on the road. I think I've played it two or three times in the studio, and it went to the Country Music Hall of Fame. It was there for ten or fifteen years, wow. and and now I've got it back, yeah. and uh, it's just a really, really special guitar. How's it sound? It sounds great. You yeah. know, those little pickups are really, really, really neat. Yeah. What's your uh, go-to steel now? What do you play or take on the road? I, I take a Carter. It's a oh, single-neck nice. Carter. Yep. Yeah. That, uh, nice for, and light. Uh, for, nice and light, exactly. Yeah. It's under 50 pounds and in the case, and uh, it's held up really amazingly well, getting beaten up by the airport. The airports have actually destroyed two cases that it's uh, been in, but the guitar has made it, and uh, I, it, I love the sound of it. it plays great i have i have two or three carters you know the double necks and then that single neck yeah and uh i i like it a lot i think i like the way it plays and guys other guys i know like uh the guy in pure prairie league oh why am i not thinking of his name john oh well anyway after he played with us for a few times he went out and got one and i i know of three other three or four other um steel players who've gone out and got those. I mean, single necks are kind of what you're playing these days because yeah. you hardly ever play a, a, the C6 tuning. I, I did in the old days, but then that was the old days. Yeah, more but, uh, Western swing or, yeah, different type of stuff. Well, no, I actually used it. That was my rock and roll ah, uh, tuning. Yeah. C6 tuning is what I, I did all those really um, heavy metal rock and roll runs on. Yeah, but the Carters, I know very popular with guys up here for flying because you can get them. I think they're under 50 pounds yeah. in the case. So, yep. Yeah. Yep. Perfect. So, so the name I was trying to think of, of yeah. their still players, John call. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At my age, it takes a while for things to kick in in your memory. It's her. I'm, I'm the worst with names. That's the worst thing. I could, if you give me your phone number, I'll remember that forever, but names. No, no, no good. Uh, yeah. That's tough. So, Let's go back. Um, I know you, you started playing at a very young age in Colorado. Um, what really got you into into playing? Did did anyone you know around you play, or uh, is something you just kind of grew to like? My grandparents were both musicians in Colorado. You know, my father is from Colorado. I, I'm from Colorado, and um, my grandfather played in big bands up in like in the 30s and the 20s during Prohibition. Yeah. The, the, Hotels up in the mountains were pretty isolated, and so they'd have these big parties where they'd have a room you could go to and get drink or other things, yeah. and then dancing downstairs with the band. And that's what my grandfather did. My grandmother was a, she's a little redhead, and she played piano, and she played in the silent movies. Oh, she wow. would, you know, they didn't give them music to play. They just said, play, play along to what you see. Yeah. And that's what she would do. Little tip jar on her piano, and. Uh, 
I think she has a lot to do with the fact that I can write songs because that's what she was doing. She was just making up songs all the time as she's watching. Yeah. And I think she passed that on to me because, I, you know, I have the ability to, to do that, too. Actually, actually, I, I did a soundtrack. This is in the 70s when I did all my session stuff. Um, it was a, a short video for a producer I knew in, in uh, Hollywood. And uh, he brought me in and he it's a shot of a rodeo. And I think it was called Eight Seconds. And it was this uh, guy on a rodeo horse, Bucking Bronco. And he's, he goes off and he's doing fine. And it's in full speed. And then it goes into slow speed and he starts to lose and fall. Anyway, the guy did the same thing. He said, just play what you feel. As you're watching the video, yeah, on Boylan, I think it was who did it, the guy's name. And uh, anyway, I did it, and uh, later on, I found out it won an Academy Award. No way, for him, yeah. <laughs> for short, for him. <laughs> but uh, you know, that was really I felt like exactly like my grandmother, but on a whole a different level. I wish, so, but my parents, my parents didn't play music. Yeah, uh, they say it skips a generation, and I think that's probably true. Um, but my Folks are big country music fans in Colorado in the fifties, you know. Yeah. And they would every Friday they we'd go to the Alibi Inn, and they would dance and and listen to live music. And even when I was a baby, they prop me up on the bar oh, yeah. and give me one of those pickled eggs and a oh. Roy Rogers, <laughs> which stunted my growth, by the way, until high school. And uh, but my dad loved steel guitar, and so when I turned six, they started steel guitar lessons for me. Wow. That's, uh, that's not a typical thing to, to pick up at that age. Um, no. Well, you know, it, times are <laughs> really changed. Yeah. Back then, at least in Colorado, um, if you wanted to play guitar, it was all lumped into one category. There weren't pedal, pedal steels then. Yeah. There were only lap steels. Lap steel, yeah. And uh, so when you took ma music lessons, the first lessons you took were in a room with like 20 other kids. Yeah. And you'd have your music stand and your little music that you were supposed to learn in front of you. And they would, you would learn lap steel for like six months. And then they'd drop that and you'd go to electric guitar, standard guitar. Oh, yeah. And I think it was because that way they could sell you two guitars instead of just <laughs> one. Yeah. So, uh, but I loved lap steel and I, I was good at it right from the very beginning. I started playing in, in church uh, every Sunday I would play, and uh, which was the perfect background for playing now because in a Baptist church, which we were, uh, people aren't allowed to applaud or do anything. You know, you play your song, it's dead quiet. You're finished, you get down and walk down the aisle, and it's dead quiet. So that's perfect for, you know, the humiliation of being a musician uh, later on in life. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly gets used to playing out sometimes yeah. when you have that type of an audience. It's like, ah, yeah. I'm used to this. Well, it happens to everybody. I yeah. was doing a show. I we we geared down at the end of the seventies, no, end of the eighties. No, well, I don't know, mid eighties. Yeah. And anyway, Vince Gill is a friend of mine, and back then he he was not a big star. Yeah. And he called up, and I wasn't doing anything. He said, "You want to come out and play Steel with me for a couple of weeks, do this tour?" And I said, "Sure." And one of the shows we did, we, we flew up to Canada yeah. and we played this big place and it might have been Toronto. It was a big, huge country. Uh, it used to be a mall or something. Oh, that's uh, in, uh, oh, it used to be a mall. Uh, oh, yeah. you might have played uh, Lulu's. Was it called Lulu's? That, I think that's it. And that's it. That's like yes. 15 minutes from my house. 
Is it really? Yeah. Oh, I'll never forget that because Vince, nobody knew Vince then. It was just, you know, just getting kicked off and uh, or kicked off the label. Um, so we flew up there and they had a, a band that opened and it was one of those stages in the round. And it was a big band with the horns and the girls that danced and, you know, they did uh, covers and all that kind of stuff. And the dance floor was packed. There must have been 2,000 people out there dancing. And then, you know, they get finished and they're coming back for another set later and the thing swings, swings around and, and Vince starts off and he starts playing and the place clears, <laughs> absolutely clears. There were two, I'm swear to you, there were two couples left and they were both so drunk they probably couldn't find an exit. And that one of the guys pit started picking a fight with Vince. You suck! <laughs> one of those deals. That was quite a place. I think they might have even had uniforms. It was real, really interesting. Yeah, it was um, an old Kmart, old um, yeah store that, or yeah, they'd convert into uh, a bar. It had the long, world's longest bar, and it's no longer there. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a fabulous place uh, to see entertainment. It was really great. Oh, one thing is because I've been, I I never go out, you know, unless I absolutely have to. And then sometimes I go for drives or I go through drive-thrus. I do everything I can without getting out of the car. Uh, so I've been locked in this house for a year with me and Mary. And so when somebody calls me like this, I get carried away with talking. I'll tell stories forever oh, because great. I've been locked in here with no contact <laughs> with other humans for so long. So you have to pardon me. So let's zip back being a young guy. Uh, playing lap steel and learning guitar. Um, what got you into your, your first band? Uh, my music teacher. And I played in a band. He got me in a band called the Tip Toppers. And it was an all-girl band and me. And uh, nice. it was a family band. And uh, they needed another musician. And he recommended me. So I joined him. And we just played at a, a bar in Colorado uh, on Sundays. Played for a few hours. And... Uh, it was, it was my first experience. And, you know, I just played uh, Sleepwalk and, and uh, I could play a few, you know, uh, guitars, guitar songs that were hits of the day. Um, so I, that's what I did with that first band. Really, I think I was 12. Wow. Yeah, those are good memories. <laughs> I wish you could go back. Yeah. Now, <laughs> oh, yeah. The cool thing about being a young person now is that you have an iPhone and you, can, you record everything. And yeah. there's certain times I go back when I, I started real young and I said, I wish I had more footage of playing at these different events, um, you know, when you're super yeah. young like that, because you got your memory of it, but there's not always a whole lot of video or some pictures, there's some pictures usually, but. Um, yeah, it's hardly ever. Yeah. Hardly ever. So would you move on from there? Um, were you thinking at that point that, music was going to be your your thing or did you have other interests i was pretty sure right from the beginning oh. and so after i got up to 14 i they could sneak me into bars so then and, and at that point i actually had a fender 1000 and which were really hard to come by in denver colorado oh. but uh i had that in a giant showman amp and i'm 14 and i was probably five foot tall yeah. so dad carried my gear for me but I, I got to play with uh, the grown-ups because, because there weren't many steel players, pedal steel players. I think there were two in Denver. And, uh, and uh, I, was, I was pretty good by then. I, I, I lived steel guitar, you know, from the time I was eight on. I, my first pedal record, I, I remember, the first time I heard of pedal steel was uh, 
Buck Owens does Harlan Howard. Uh-huh. I don't know if you've ever heard that record, but that's um, that's a uh, oh god Ralph Mooney's you know, kind of my initiation into him. And he, he was a real basic pedal player. And so it's a great way to learn because there weren't any teachers. You had to learn by listening to other people. And so uh, I used, I could play every note he played on that record. And I would stay up until two in the morning playing down in the basement, which was our, our music room. And uh, you know, Alvino Ray, I don't know if you remember any of these guys. Remember Alvino Ray? Yeah. You know, he was the first guy to have that talking thing that Peter Frampton uh, ended up, and Joe Walsh. Yep. He was the, he he did that in the late '40s and '50s. Did he really? Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's really something. He yeah, and Speedy West and Speedy West and Jimmy Bryant were a big influence on me. And oh, I have a great story about them if you want to hear it. Yeah, I'd love to. Okay, we toured with Yes in the '70s. Did extensive touring with Yes. And uh, at those times, we'd book a whole uh, level of a Holiday Inn, you know, the whole, what do you call it, second story. And uh, and it would be both bands and the roadies and everybody all together. And so, uh, and you'd have days off. And one day we had off and I was walking down the hall and you'd hear different things in different rooms. And a lot of people had their doors open during the day. And I'm walking down the hall and I hear a Tennessee Ernie Ford record. I don't know if you remember him. He had a TV show in the 50. Sweet Pea, right? Yeah. I heard Tennessee Ernie Ford coming out of somebody's room. And I thought, what in the world? And, and Tennessee Ernie Ford used um, Speedy West and Jimmy Bryant. They were his section guys. They played on all his records. And they were an incredible team. And uh, I'm walking by. I, I got to look and see who's playing this. I didn't think I knew anybody who had ever even heard of, of, of them. And so I looked in the door, and it was Steve Howe. Wow. you know the guitar player yeah. and uh, he, and i started talking to him i said wow i'm just amazed that you know and he said yeah that he grew up on speedy west and, and jimmy bryant and that's what he was doing and yes and you know the next night when i was listening to him it was exactly what he's he's playing guitar exactly like uh bryant and and steel he tried to play steel just like uh speedy west it was bringing you know with sweet pea to yes in the 70s and i thought that was just you know Tennessee Ernie Ford and yes, what a great wild combination. So I have to go back go. and listen to some of those records to to hear that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll hear it. That's fascinating. Yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't think that's like a mile apart. Oh, that's <laughs> worlds apart. Yeah, it's interesting when you you run into certain people who you uh, even country people who you you think that all they listen to is country, but they'll you know. It's like Alison Krauss loves heavy metal. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you just they get they play one type of music, but they listen to something you know a complete opposite. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting how you you get those wide ranges. But I mean, it's all great stuff. So I think you know, good music is good music. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So moving on from uh, being fourteen and, and doing pedal steel and all that stuff. Um, playing with the big boys. Playing with the big boys. How how was that when you were young? Because I know I I started out pretty young, and and same as you, I was got thrown in with adult players when I was your age, and it's different. I mean, it, you don't always you you fit in, but there's always a part of you. I always felt that you didn't fit in because you weren't an adult yet, right? You you could play uh-huh. your parts, you fit in the band. Um, but it really wasn't until I was I got in my twenties that I felt like okay now <laughs> I really 
fit in. Did you did you feel that at all? No, they yeah. they they took me in and and they tried to corrupt me in as many ways as they could possibly do it. And, and I was an eager participant. But, you know, those were, you probably had the same experience. Those were, uh, it's a good thing I was young because uh, I was going to high school. Uh, yeah, high school, even before that. But I was going to high school. So, you know, you, you'd be in school from uh, eight to three. Yeah. And then I would get a ride to, uh, I taught guitar lessons and solo guitars at a place called Don Edwards Guitar City in, uh, in Denver. And I would go there, and I'd get there by four. I'd give lessons and uh, sell guitars, and then I'd have to get in the car, get picked up, and uh, go to the bar. And I was playing uh, bars uh, eight nights a week because on Sundays we would play the regular. I think they had to close at eight, and then we'd go in to an after-hours place that started at 10 and went till four. Wow. And I was doing that and going to high school, doing had those three things on my plate. So sometimes – some of the help that the boys passed on to me was well received because it's, you know, just to stay awake through all that was really a, a challenge. I bet. I bet. Were you doing any recording uh, at that point? Well, you know, there wasn't much recording in Denver, especially yeah. uh, back in those days. There were, few, there were like home studios, you know. There was one major studio. But back then, you know, they, they only had two-track and four-track machines. Yeah. And, uh, and, a lot of the country guys that I played with didn't have the money to hire a good studio anyway. So there wasn't a lot of recording in Denver until at one point when I, after I'd heard the Beatles and all that kind of stuff, I got offered a job. One of the guys, George Grantham, who ended up our drummer, this guy came in and wanted to buy a set, one set of sticks, one pair of sticks, which was really odd, but he'd been in the store. And when we were, not busy. We would jam. All of us would get together and jam. And he'd come in during one of those jams, went back and talked to his band, and then came in and used the excuse of buying one pair of sticks to ask me if I wanted to join their rock band. And their rock band was one of the two or three most popular in the Colorado area. Wow. And so uh, I jumped at the chance because I was really into rock and roll and playing with guys my own age, you know, was and all my country friends just freaked. They said, you're, you're making a horrible mistake. This rock and roll thing is not going to work out. And, you know, you have a chance. Someday you'll be in Nashville playing steel, you know. And you, you're going to give that up to play rock. So anyway, so I ended up in a rock band. And uh, that's, that's when things really changed. And uh, played, you know, played with all the, like the birds. We opened mm -hmm. for the birds. We opened for Sonny and Cher. Wow. We opened for the Beach Boys. All these bands that would come through Denver, we, we were one of the opening acts that were, were always there. And I remember when we played at the Buffalo Springfield, they were our band's favorite band. Yeah. And most of the songs we played that were really good were Buffalo Springfield songs. And so they had us opening at uh, a roller rink in, in Denver yeah. for them. And uh, so we go on, and, and they weren't there. They, they were still at the hotel. They were the kind that didn't show up at, you know, until time to play. So they're there playing, and, and we're, we're looking around. So we started playing Buffalo Springfield songs. <laughs> we played their whole catalog. The audience was so confused. We played their whole catalog before they got there, and uh, and they never saw it. They never knew. Yeah. And then they get there and play the same songs. But uh, but Neil wasn't with them, needless to say, and neither was Bruce. Oh, yeah. And so they didn't sound a whole lot like the Springfield that was on record. Yeah. But uh, that's the first time I met Richie Furet. Wow. So yeah, different playing in a rock band, um, 
were you mainly steel? Were you playing guitar as well um, and lap, or what was? What did you mostly play? Yeah, I was playing both. I was yeah. playing guitar. You know, if it was Chuck Berry, I play guitar or whatever. But I, we, we were doing. You know, I could do. For example, I could do Jimi Hendrix really well on that C6 tuning. Yeah. And so we played a lot like that. I actually am on record. Uh, it's The record's called uh, Flower Power, I think they call it now. And it's one of the earliest rock records. I think it was 65 or 6. And uh, the star of the movie was his first starring part, Jack Nicholson. Wow. And uh, Flower Power. Yep. And so uh, they they wanted uh, Jimi Hendrix, Purple Haze. They wanted him to play Purple Haze in their soundtrack. And in a fit of good taste, Jimi turned him down. And so uh, they came to us, Our the guy that produced our little local band uh, that made records, yeah. uh, mentioned us. So anyway, I flew out to Los Angeles and played Purple Haze backwards on, on pedal steel. So if you ever get that soundtrack, because you can still find it. Yeah. Um, it, it's hilarious. It's you know, instead of boom, 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 it's back, boom, boom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> completely backwards all the way through. I, I got a kick out of it, and I don't think anyone else noticed. It's called Ash Winsbury, very wow. sixty title. Another thing. So uh, yeah, so that was the beginning. I mean, that was kind of like what I did in Poco. It was just an extension of of that. Except in Poco, in the beginning, I didn't play guitar. I played, uh, you know, I would play steel guitar and dobro and. Uh, banjo and stuff like that. Yeah. So let's let's talk about getting that call and and heading to Los Angeles to play and how you kind of formed Poco. Uh, I know you've mm-hmm. told the story a million times, but um, give us a, a short version of how that all happened. Okay. Um, well, one of my best friends and still my best friend forever since junior high school. Uh, Miles Thomas was, he went out to LA along with a band called, they were called the Soul Survivors and they went to LA, they called themselves the Poor. And one of the guys in the Poor was Randy Meisner. And, uh, you know, I, I I loved Randy Meisner. When we were playing in local bands, he, you know, his, his local band and us, we played festivals and stuff a lot together. And I just admired him. Always wanted to play with Randy. Yeah. So anyway, Randy and those guys, and Miles is their road manager, goes to L.A. He ends up, they break up. He ends up road managing or roadying for the Buffalo Springfield. And uh, so they're in the studio. And uh, they, Richie has this song called Kind Woman. And Jimmy's producing them. And uh, they decide that, <coughs> excuse me. They decide that they'd like a steel guitar. They think a steel guitar would be great on it. And so my friend Miles is there, and he says, hey, I know the, the best steel guitar player there is. You know? Well, let's give him a call. And they agreed, probably because there wasn't, I think uh, Sneaky Pete and Red Rhodes were the only guys in L.A. at the time. And so uh, so I got the call. Uh, you know, I got the call from my friend Miles, and he said, uh, come on out. You can stay at my house. And uh, I got this session for you, and I got an audition for you, too. And I said, like what? You can audition for uh, the submarine, what do they call them? The, the uh, submarine band. I can't, Graham Parsons band. Um, it was a country band. It yeah, was yeah. playing like the Palomino out there. Yeah. They, they need a steel player. And uh, so we'll set up this audition uh, for the submarine band and this session. And so come on out. So, uh, so I did. I came out. And uh, 
flew out there, got to the studio, and I was, it's the first time I'd ever been in a big time, you know, Sunset Sound, big time studio, gold records on the walls. The doors were uh, recording down the hall, wow. and uh, I, I got stories about that too, but I won't go there. Um, <laughs> so uh, it was a really, it was really a big deal, and they, you know, my favorite band, and I'm getting to play on their record and all this kind of stuff. And I opened up my case, and the steel guitar was completely broken. They had busted the pickups out of it. They were just dangling there. No. And uh, so it was really heartbreaking because here was my big moment in life, I felt, and I, I had no guitar. And, you know, in 1967 in Los Angeles, you couldn't call a music store and order, you know, say, can I rent a, a pedal steel? Yeah. And even, even if you did, you'd end up with what happened to me. Uh, Messina says, well, you know what? I think Stephen Stills has a pedal steel in the closet here. He wanted to learn to play, but, but never did. And it's just sitting here. So we broke it out. And it was, you know, it's a pretty decent show, bud. But the problem was it was the Emmons setup which I'm sure you know what that means. Yeah. It means the pedals are, are backwards to me because yeah. I, I use a day setup. And uh, so I ended up playing the most important record I've ever played on, trying to make sure I could <laughs> not push the wrong pedals because they were backwards. You know, it's like trying to play uh, Purple Haze with your guitar behind your back. Oh, yeah. And uh, But I came through it. I came through it okay, and they really liked it. And the next day they said, you know, we, the Springfield's broken up. We want to start a new band. Would you like, would you be interested? So that's, that was the beginning. And then, and then I called, uh, then I called um, George Grantham. We, they couldn't, we rehearsed for like six months and, and nothing happened. There were nobody really great. I thought, geez, they're, they're going to know all these great musicians, you know, fabulous. This is going to be incredible. Yeah. Nobody. And I was running out of money. I had sold my beloved poor Porsche, uh, Corvette, and so everything else I owned to stay out there for this project. Yeah. And so I was running out of money and there was no band. So I said, you know, I know a great drummer and he sings high. I think you'd really like him. It was George, the drummer from my band in, in Colorado. Yeah. And so we got George out and, and they love George and, and who wouldn't. And then uh, we needed a bass player. And I, I knew Randy was there and I knew his band had broken up. And I think he was, doing odd jobs and stuff like that. So I ran over to Randy's house. I, Miles was stayed in contact with all those guys. So I knew where he was. I ran over there and uh, remember he was washing his uh, Austin Healy bug eye. You know those? Mm -hmm. The Austin Healy, those little tiny things with the bug eyes. Yeah. He was out in the front yard washing that. And I came over and, and he had a flat top. He had cut all his hair off. He had a flat top because <laughs> he thought he might end up going into the service. Um, so anyway, I talked to him and he, he was happy to come by and do a rehearsal. And uh, we had a lot of guys rehearse. Timothy B was one of them. And uh, I just, you know, loved Randy so much that I pushed really hard for uh, us to hire Randy. So it was my friend Randy and my friend George, uh, Richie and, and uh, Jimmy. So that was our band. Yeah. And it was a great band. I, yeah, obviously. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's what, got that's what, the band that kicked off the whole country rock thing in LA. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, it wasn't there before that. So struggling, obviously, uh, running low on money. When, how did you fix that issue? How did you, uh, manage to make it work? Actually, Neil Young fixed it for us. And, and I don't think he knows it to this day, but you know, Neil's notorious for not showing up. I've experienced it in my lifetime. I've had a tour canceled because he wasn't having fun. Yeah. Um, 
So Neil wouldn't show up, but he wouldn't tell anybody that he wasn't showing up. And so this guy, Dickie Davis, who ended up managing us in the beginning, he was their road manager. He would just take, he'd have an airline ticket for Neil and he'd take and he'd throw it in his glove compartment. And then, you know, they'd go on and they'd try and find somebody else or play with just without Neil. And, um, and they did that. He did that his entire career. He's done that his entire career. And uh, so we were, we, we got kicked out of Richie's house rehearsing and kicked out of Jimmy's house. And it was really looking grim because there's no place we could rehearse and we had no money. You know, there was like, I was living with friends and most of the guys were living with friends. And uh, so I'm over at Dickie Davis's house or his apartment one afternoon. And he said, and I walk in on the table, there's all these airline tickets. There's like, a hundred airline tickets scattered on there. And, and I said, what's that? And, and Dickie says, well, those are the Neil Young tickets that we never got to use. And I said, you're kidding. And I opened up one and looked at it and the ticket was made out to initial N Young. Yeah. Well, it just so happens. <clears throat> my first name is Norman. <laughs> so we gathered up all those tickets took, and back in these, in the old days, you could do this. We took them in and got our money back. No. And it was like thousands of dollars. And with that <laughs> money, we could afford to go to SIR and rehearse. And that's how Neil got us in, in, into, uh, into the Troubadour. <laughs> that's fabulous. You can't do that, that now. <laughs> no, you can't do that now. It was a different time. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's, that's a great story. Um, yeah, good, good for Neil. For not, for not. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably the last really sweet thing he's ever done in his life <laughs> he didn't even know it so when i should, be good. I should talk nice about him because he's a canadian right oh yeah sorry no that's all right <laughs> that's all good so what ended up being your first official gig with uh with poco uh do you remember i think we, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was um beverly hills high and uh, it was in an auditorium for, it might've been for graduation. Yeah. And uh, it was Three Dog Night, who had just just released a record, and us. And uh, we went from there to being the house band at the Troubadour. The Troubadour was a really important club back in the 60s and 70s, yeah. and where everybody wanted to play. And uh, we had connections there. And uh, so we had this deal where we, were, we gave them a good rate because they'd let us rehearse in the afternoons. Oh, yeah. And so we'd rehearse there and then play at night. And we became the house band and, and we would fill the place every night. And it was, it was really fun because the celebrities would come out. They heard, I mean, uh, the main writer for the LA Times, music writer, his name escapes me again now, um, said Poco was the next big thing. And so all of a sudden it was so hot. Everyone was coming, all the, the movie stars and that. And I, I remember like, the first night looking down at the celebrity area and there was Ricky Nelson, Ozzy and uh, David wow. and Ricky, Ricky became a big fan. He came all the time. And that's one of the reasons Randy ended up after uh, Richie kicked him out of the band. He ended up playing with, uh, with Ricky. Yeah. Um, so, and you know, you'd see Waylon Jennings, uh, George Harrison, um, uh, the list goes on of, of people who are coming by to see what was going on with this. You know, uh, Gene Clark, Doug Dillard, Chris Hillman, uh, all those guys. The guys hanging out were in the bar that couldn't afford to come into the show were J.D. Souther and right. Glenn Fry and yeah. uh, Jackson Brown. Um, but the 
they could get more girls in the bar that so they didn't really care i don't think but yeah. actually jd <laughs> jd and uh, glenn uh, had a, a record deal and they ended up opening for poco as a duo at the troubadour for a while wow so what made you guys so popular do you think it was it a new sound um the band was that great what would you think was the the trick back then for for everyone coming to see you I all think, the time. I think it was both. I think it was both. Well, first people were interested in what Richie Furey was doing because he'd been the lead singer in the Buffalo Springfield. Yeah. And uh, they did CSN, I don't think was out at the time. We, we were doing that before people had recorded. We couldn't record because we didn't have a recording contract. We had to try and get one. Uh, other bands like the Birds had recording contracts so they could just come by, see the show and go into the studio and, and, and repeat. And uh, so I think... First of all, uh, Richie's stature and plus Richie's talent, his voice is still one of my favorites of all time. I love his voice. Yeah. And then when you combine that with, can you imagine him and Randy Meisner, you know, oh, yeah. it was just magical. And then Jimmy playing that kind of uh, um, guitar that James Burton made famous with Ricky Nelson. Yeah. That was the style he was playing, which was really a country rock style. Yeah. And uh, then me, and that's when I started taking the steel and turning it over upside down and playing it with a chair and, you know, I would play it with a beer bottle and a music stick, you know, just, just getting crazy at the end of the set yeah. for our last song. And I think people were kind of stunned by that because no one had ever seen a steel player do that. So we had we had all the elements. George was a great drummer. So it, all the elements were there. The, the, the songs were new and different. The sound was new and different. Yeah. And, um, and steel guitar, you have to remember, was not in rock bands then. Mm -hmm. When we did the first record, Picking Up the Pieces, uh, Clive Davis was head of the, of the label and he called us in when we were in New York and he said, I want to play you the single. I just mixed down your first single, picking up the pieces for you. And he put it on in the reel to reel and he played it. Yeah. And it was the same. It was exactly the same, except he took all the steel guitar out. No. And uh, Richie said to him, that's great, but there's no steel guitar on it anymore. And Clive Davis said, this is exactly what he said. You can't have a hit record with steel guitar on it. So that was kind of the prevail. Although he's he's an idiot, you know. I mean, the Everly Brothers, uh, Lucille, yeah. Buddy M played the solo on that, and there, there were lots of different, you know, hit records with steel guitar on them. But he he was he was a lawyer, and he wasn't really a music person. But uh, so that was the atmosphere there. So when I started doing crazy things, that was something the people hadn't expected, and only country bands had steel guitar. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, so what was the Making the first album, uh, what was that experience like? Were you really prepared going in? Did you have everything, or was it kind of a, a work in progress when you, you got into the studio? Well, we cut a deal you could never do again with CBS back then. Um, we got unlimited access to the studio. So now we could go in, and it was virtually unlimited. Mm -hmm. And uh, we could go in, instead of hiring a rehearsal hall and rehearsing our songs, we just go in the studio. And we'd spend a week rehearsing in the studio and then push go when we were where we wanted on that song. So that that was uh, that was really great, perfect for us. I was astounded because there was so much I didn't know about recording and, and even music. Jimmy would sit there, look up at the speakers, and he would hear things that I couldn't hear. You know, there's a buzz there or there's this there, or, you know, this uh, compressor is pushing too hard here and you know i had so much to learn it was just uh it was pretty overwhelming experience that's yeah that's amazing deal i'm um, just being able to go in whenever you wanted that's 
How did that deal? Oh, come? I was. How did that deal come yeah. about? Really, I, I've never heard of it. I never heard again. I, they regretted it after about two albums. <laughs> um, but I, I'd never heard of that either. I'm, I'm, we had a good lawyer. That's what happened. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So when did you first feel like Poco was getting some success outside of, um, you know, being that band at the Troubadour and, and yeah. being this L.A. sensation? Um when did you feel like you started to really kind of spread out a bit? Well, once the first album got out, and it and college kids, it, it hit their big, and FM radio had just come out. Oh. You know, before that, it was only AM yeah. radio, which is mono and, you know, really boring. Uh, uh, then FM radio came out, and they had a diff- different format. AM was where the Eagles got played a lot, and FM was where Poco got played a lot. Uh, but AM sold records, so they made wise choices. Uh, so we got all this play on FM, which is what the college kids were listening to. And like on our second album, we had a 20-minute long. The whole side was one song, and that was perfect for uh, FM DJs in uh, 1970 because they could put that on and then go out in the hall or down the street or whatever, you know, for 20 minutes and uh, come back. Yeah. And so we got a lot of play. And uh, a lot of bands actually were doing that. I know Santana did it, and a lot of, a lot of bands did that. Um, so that's once we hit the college campuses, then for the next, through the early 70s into the middle, we played nothing but colleges. Like six nights a week, we were in every college in the country. Yeah. And that built into a, a following that, uh, that we, we're still milking today. Those people are just really old now, but it's the same people yeah. coming to the show. Yeah. What was touring like then? Were you um, were you doing some flying, or was you you threw your stuff in your car and you where you went, or how how was touring like uh, at the beginning when you're going through all those col- colleges? Yeah, well, in the in the beginning, it was all station wagons, and we we got a truck to haul the gear, yeah. and we had a couple of roadies, and they would drive to the gigs, and we'd all pile in a station wagon, nice. and and drive from one show to the other. So. Let's talk about your steel playing on Indian Summer. Um, awesome song yeah. and awesome steel playing on, on that song. Um, do you remember your approach when, when doing Thank that you. song? Oh, you know, I always have the same approach with steel guitar. I, I, I look at it as country strings. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I try and play it like a string section. And, uh, the one thing that I was taught by my peers in Colorado when I was growing up was that how important melody is. And uh, the, the great players that I've known look down on the guys who go, I actually look down on them when they're doing that on mandolin. You know, I, I just think that's so self-serving or whatever. It just doesn't get the point. Yeah. The most important thing is to have a strong melodic position on the instrument and on steel. And steel is perfect for that. If you just look at it as a, if it is, as if you were uh, charting a, a session on strings. Yeah. And, uh, but I also love to have different sounds on the steel and not have it sound just like one thing. So that's why I use that uh, sitar bar, they call them, yeah. uh, on, on that record. Um, so that, you know, it was not hard to play on that because Paul wrote such great songs and the chords were so, they flew, for pedal steel, they flew by so easily. Easless, was he? Yeah, whatever that word is. Easily. It was easy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so the approach was the same as I do on all those songs. I, I, I have a sound I like on steel. And I like octaves. 
And uh, that's one thing I've noticed a lot, a lot of guys don't do is, you know, to, to have an octave, that bottom string, to have that going uh, through all the padding. Yeah. And it gives it a big, full sound if you can get the whole the whole thing. <coughs> oh, there goes the dog. Yeah. <laughs> that's our that's a hillbilly uh, alarm. Oh, there you go. <laughs> that's what it is. Yeah. So, uh, so that that's always my approach. I love the sound. In law magnolia was approached the same way. You know, with that that big sound, trying to make the steel sound real as big as it can. Yeah. So, what were you using as an amp for your steel back then when, in those records? Where is it the same setup all the twins. time? Twins. Twin. Yeah. Twins. Yeah. Yeah. It was in in the mid 70s actually i went we started off with twins and then i we on the big stages we went to dual showmans and i actually played steel through two dual showmans wow that'd be loud and, and a, a leslie that had been beefed up to twice the power of a normal leslie yeah and uh, that was my amp setup so i gotta tell you another story okay yeah. you can cut all this out no no so we we're playing and the opening act was uh golden earring you remember them yeah i remember uh, that name yeah uh, what was their big hit? They had a giant hit, something love. Da, 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 da. Oh, anyway, people will remember Golden Earring, and they had just come over from Holland, and they couldn't afford to bring roadies with them, and so they had to use American crews that had never worked with them. R- Radar Love. Oh yeah, yeah, Radar Love. Remember that? Yeah. So anyway, so yeah. we're set up on the back, and I've got my two dual showmans and my big Leslie, and then a drum set, and then on the other side, Paul I think had a stack of Marshalls, and Tim had a. Uh, big amps and ampegs, I think. And so we're set up and then right in front of us, you know, with a little aisle in between, they set up for a uh, golden earring and they put their amps and they had, you know, a bunch of stacks of, of um, marshals. And so the very end of their set, they play money, you know, that song, Oh, mm-hmm. oh yeah, gotta give me money. And when it ended, the drummer would, they had, well, the drummer would jump over the drum set down to the front and they'd all take a bow. And at the same time, they fired off this giant, there was a giant cannon. I mean, it must have been three feet across that shot uh, confetti and smoke and everything you could think of, everything yeah. but BBs. And there was a chain on it and you had to pull the chain for the thing to fire. And he had to be right in time with the drummer jumping. So they got to their last song and uh, the drummer, you know, they play the whole thing and the drummer starts to jump and the guy pulls the chain and, and the cannon goes like this. Instead <laughs> of shooting straight up in the air, it shot my amplifiers off the back of the stage. No way. <laughs> and he ju- he's jumping over the drums and he turns around to see what's going on and he falls flat on his face at the front of the stage. <laughs> that, was, that was, by the way, was the last show we played with them. So Yeah. <laughs> but that, when I think of those big deluxe, they were a big target. Oh, no, over okay. the years, over the years, it's always been twins, and it, it's back to that because they're reliable. And nowadays, touring is different. You don't carry your amps with you. I, I don't know anybody who does, except you know the giant acts. Yeah. And uh, so you can get a twin anywhere, and they're usually pretty good, and, and they're reliable. So uh, that's what I play through. Uh, are you in stereo with the twins, or? No, just one just twin. One twin, yeah, yeah. But I use two. I have to use two channels because one's for the electric guitar and yeah. one's for the steel guitar. So I need two separate channels of EQ and volume and all that. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about when Crazy Love came out. Um, from what I kind of heard and and read about a little bit, that you didn't expect that song to be the hit it was. Um, kind of unexpected. Yeah, I don't think anybody would have expected it. The story is, 
right before we were we were going to go into the studio and record, Timothy got a call from Don Henley, and uh, he invited him, needless to say, to to join the Eagles, and uh, which we thought was a pretty good career move at the time. <laughs> that that's my third joke. Yeah. Anyway, um, pretty good. <laughs> so so Tim left. Yeah, we, we you know we told Tim, come on, career move. That's you got to do it. And uh, so then George, our drummer, decided he thought the band was going to break up. So he joined the Birds and went off with them. And so it was just me and Paul Cotton. And, uh, you know, we thought about changing the name because his first name is also Norman. We were going to be two Normans yeah. instead of Poco. It, that's, that's my fourth joke. Right yeah. there. <laughs> um, so anyway, we're in the studio and we're rehearsing new bass players and drummers in the rehearsal studio and uh, management came down and we said, here's the new songs we're working on. And we played heart of the night and crazy love. And I think spellbound and uh, the management said, boy, you know, that's, that's really great. And the label calls and says, we're thinking we're going to drop the act. And so they invited the label down to the rehearsal hall and said, you should listen to these songs they want to record and then make up your mind. We played them crazy love and they said, go make a record. So that song saved, the band would have ended in 78 if it weren't for, for that and that song. Wow. And, uh, and that song was written in about 30 minutes at the most. It, it was just one of those that came to me all together. Yeah. And I, I thought it wasn't finished when I played it for the guys. I, I did the, ooh, crazy love, ah. I did that and I said, don't worry, guys, I, I'll put words there. I'll take those parts out. <laughs> they said, yeah, I don't think that's a good idea, so. Wow. It went through a lot of, and then the label didn't want us to release it in, uh, it was released in November. And the label fought against that really hard because they said, you can't break a record in November because all the radio stations are going to playing uh, Christmas songs. Yeah. And so it's, it's like the worst thing you could do. And for some reason we said, no, 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 we really want to release it. I think it was mid-November. And it, it, I think what happened really was that Everybody thought that. So nobody in the business released a record in November except us. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, we got a lot of, lot of airplay. But everybody said that that was, that we had finally hit the song that was a hit. And, uh, you know, Timothy had written some great songs for the band that I thought were going to be hits. Yeah. Richie quit because Good Feeling to Know wasn't a hit. Um, Paul wrote great songs. So, you know, there were a lot of great songs floating out there. And I was, I was surprised when it, went to number one and the legend album sold a million copies wow so did you feel back at that time obviously the eagles were very successful and and doing their thing that was your competition or they had, they had some great songs yeah really great songs. i remember being in the studio in our at rca and our engineer said i was just driving in driving in uh for the sessions, and I, I heard uh, I heard us guys on the radio, and I don't remember recording that song. It was called "Take It Easy." <laughs> uh, no, that wasn't us. But uh, you know, I think if it weren't for the Eagles, Poco wouldn't have lasted because we we would sell a fair amount of records. We'd sell three hundred thousand, maybe three hundred fifty. Yeah, uh, enough for them to make money pretty much every time. And at that, you can pretty much keep making records. But um, the Eagles were selling a million records. And I think, you know, I, I've, I've always thought that because the Eagles were doing so well, the labels would, would stay with us because they thought maybe someday, you know, there's so much like the Eagles on our label, we can have an Eagles. So I, I think if they weren't there, we might not have been able to last as long as we have. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, actually. Um, so back in that day, obviously, Crazy Love came out. Um, 
were you doing a lot of headlining tours at that point? Uh, were you doing a lot of supporting? What what kind of touring uh, was happening back then? Before Crazy Love, it was I think through the seventies we were mostly headlining. Yeah. I think packages are more, I mean, packages is pretty much all we do these days. Yeah. And it's been that way for the past 20 years. But back then, it was, you know, a lot of people wanted to come see the band, um, even without Richie, even without Tim. Thank God, I mean, Tim leaving was a big crushing blow to us. And, uh, but with that hit, it, it got us through it. It got us through that. And the audience would still come. And, and even though Tim, Timothy wasn't there and, uh, so, um, no, we, we were mostly, especially after Crazy Love, I mean, we headlined the Greek Theater and, you know, all these big venues, Red Rocks in Colorado, yeah. uh, Carnegie Hall, uh, places like that. So it, it kicked us up a notch. Yeah, for sure. Do you have any good stories from, from the road? Good stories from the road. Well, I mean, we played, I, I've had been fortunate enough to play places I never dreamed I'd play, like the Hollywood Bowl. Yeah. We played there. We played Red Rocks. We played uh, uh, Shea Stadium, wow. the Peace, Peace Fest, or what it was called, Freedom Fest. Um, you know, played a lot of really great places. I can't think of them all. Even around the world, I can't think of them all offhand. But, um, you know, it was it was just a wild experience, a wild, great experience. So, um we were playing in St. Louis, I remember, at uh, the big hall here in St. Louis. And this was about, must have been mid-70s or earlier, 74. And uh, we we were opening for the James Gang. Oh, yeah. And uh, that night, we opened and did our thing. And, and, you know, we all stuck around to see Joe. And, and that night, he, Joe was just on fire. He was just, you know, just amazing, absolutely great. And... Back, you know, at backstage, he's, Joe, that was just great. And Richie Fure has always wanted to be a guitar player, but he's a folk singer. You know, he plays good rhythm guitar, but he's not a real lead player. Not, uh, he can't uh, improvise. Yeah. And so uh, Richie says, boy, I'd give anything if I could play like that. And Joe looks at him and says, well, it's not that hard. And he says, just, uh, I'll tell you what, I, in 20 minutes, I can teach you to play just like me. It's not, you know, once you got the thing down, it's, it's not hard. And, you know, I had a background of being a guitar teacher for 10 years. And uh, I thought, 20 minutes? I want to see this. So he says, I'm in room 232 or whatever. <clears throat> Come on down after the show and uh, can we bring your guitar. 20 minutes, no problem. You'll be playing just like me. So um, we get back to the hotel and I said, Richie, I got to go with you. I got to see this. So we go and knock on the door. Joe answers. And uh, Joe's already in party mode, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, it was the typical holiday and, you know, had used to have those two uh, twin beds and they had all the green and gold, you yeah. know, on them and the floors were green. And so anyway, so Richie and I sit down on one twin bed facing Joe, who's sitting on the other close to the Jack Daniels. And uh, yeah. Joe goes, okay, here we go. And he goes, and then he looks at Richie and he says, okay, now you do it. You know, there was, there was no way. And so uh, uh, I said, why don't you slow it down a little, Joe? Come on. So, and it's, it's just not that hard. And he does the same. Okay, Richie, it's your, but, you know, after about five minutes of this, you know, Joe's getting further along and so are we. And uh, so we, we decided, uh, thanks a lot, Joe. That really helps. And we, we left the room. And about a month later, my phone rings in, when I was living in L.A. And it's Joe. 
And Joe says, we're working on our, our next record, our new record, and we'd really love to have some pedal steel guitar on this one song. And it was my chance. I said, really, Joe? Hey, why don't I come down? I'll show you 20 minutes. I can show you how to play pedal steel just like me. Come on. <laughs> so <laughs> I ended up playing on their thing. But I, I got the chance to, to lay them down on that one, which was one of my fond memories of the road. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Did you do a lot of session work outside of uh, Poco? A lot of session work. Yeah, I played. I played on everyone's from Three Dog Night, their hits, to uh, Gladys Knight, from Joan Baez to to Joe Walsh, um, and everything in between. I played music um, sessions next, sitting next to Glenn Campbell. Oh wow. Um, yeah, I did. I did so many sessions I can't even remember in in Europe, in, in New York, in a lot in L.A. I I was the session steel player in L.A. for a, a number of years. Do you? What do you prefer? Do you prefer being in the studio or playing live? If you had a, a choice. Oh, I'm playing live. I, I don't do studio anymore. I I, I quit in the '80s. Um, because I just, I don't like the atmosphere. I was, you know, I, I played in the A team in LA and I played in the A team in Nashville when I first moved there in 85. And it, it was a horrible experience because the whole idea, especially in country music, which had such low budgets and they were so uh, conscious of the money and this kind of stuff. Uh, you'd, I'd be in a session with all great, great players and uh, they'd play the song, on, you know, on the demo on the, speakers or your earphones and you'd listen to it and you'd have a little chart and you'd put it down and then you'd play it and the idea probably to this day is that you didn't want to make a mistake because they didn't want to do two takes or three heaven forbid yeah. so if you made a mistake at the end they'd say okay how was everybody anybody need another chance and if you raised your hand it was like they could throw darts at you you know uh, yeah. so and it was all of a sudden it became obvious obvious to me about country music and the recordings they all sound alike and there's a reason it's because everybody played safe yeah i was used to using the studio as a as a tool where you could experiment and try this and try that and go different directions and and you know it was a real um, learning and not a learning but it was a great place to experiment not so. Not doing sessions. I had to play. You know, and, and producers usually didn't know anything about steel guitar, especially. And they were all looking for that whack, 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 same thing. If you did that, they were thrilled. Yeah. But if you tried to do anything that was any bit out of the, out of the norm, um, no. And you definitely didn't want to. So I played real safe all the time, and I just hated it. Yeah. And I finally said, I'm not, I'm just not going to do this. It's changed now. Uh, like my favorite steel player is Dan Dugmore. I don't know if you know who Danny is. Yeah, I know who that and, is. Yeah, uh, for sure. Stuff he's done, you know, is so, it's so much like I would do if I were as good as he, as he is. You know, he's using all, the, he's doing a lot of the things I did back in the 70s, all the, the fuzz tones and the octave dividers and the Leslie's and that, and playing parts that aren't traditional steel guitar parts. Yeah. And uh, so there's room for that. Sturgill Simpson, he's got some great stuff on Sturgill's record. So there's a, you know, there's more experimentation, uh, but the only problem is there's no steel guitars on any country records anymore. Yeah. But other than that, it's wide open. Well, maybe that will come back, and maybe this time that, you know, everyone's spending so much time at home, 
uh, in their home studios <laughs> and stuff, right? Maybe there's more experimenting going on. Um, yeah. You know? Let's hope. Yeah. Yeah, let's hope. Yeah, there certainly isn't much steel at all on, no. on country. Um, you know, what kills me, too, is that when we went, Paul and I went to Nashville in 85, and we sat down, we were signed to MCA, and we were at a desk with this guy, Jimmy Bowen, mm-hmm. who was like the king of Nashville at, uh, at the time. He was, uh, he was running MCA, although he wasn't the president. We sat down, and he said, okay, you guys. And he said, all right, you know those really loud, great guitar parts that you're playing? And he looked at Paul. He said, he said you can't have those in country music. And uh, he said, you know, the two-singer thing, you got to figure out who's going to be the singer because country audience can't understand two singers. Uh, and he went through this list of things, you know, those drums that you have on your records, yeah, they're going to be pushed way back. You can't have drums like that on a country record. And he says, you know, we only sell four or five gold records a year in country music. And uh, I'll never forget when he said this. He said, you know, if we do the records the way you want to do them, we put them out, everybody will love them, but there's going to be this one little old lady sitting around the radio who's going to, uh, not, it's not Ernest Tubb. She's going to call the station and they're going to end up jerking the record. And so, you know, we have to be real careful because we don't sell a lot of records. And I'm thinking... I guess I figured out why you don't sell a lot of records. You're making records for one little old lady <laughs> in Omaha, Nebraska. You know, you only have four. So it just, it kept, we ended up getting away from that label and uh, that guy, thank God. But um, it just, you know, irks me every time I hear on or watch on TV and hear country music, which is heavy metal now, you know, the drums and the, it's totally heavy metal, but with a hillbilly singer and uh and virtually the same melody to every song yeah yeah that wraps it up <laughs> and and now they sell millions and millions of records I'd, I'd like to see jimmy bowen again he's retired to hawaii and he's laying on the beach there with the the money he, uh he made out of country music yeah i know so what it's like now for for you touring and um getting out there on the road and in the shows you're doing now um how much does it differ from when you used to tour in the in the seventies and eighties and and that time period? Um, do you like it? Obviously, you know, so much more technical involved now. But is it just it's just fun getting out and playing the songs and and doing those things, or did you prefer yeah. it back in the day better? No, I mean the pressure's off now. <clears throat> There's no pressure to have a hit record because you know it's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, it's basically we get a chance to go see our fans and our friends. We have a lot of friends um, around the country who have come to Poco shows for 50 years. And we've all grown up and grown old together. And uh, it's, it's really enjoyable to see them. And we sell out virtually everywhere we play. And, and we play some packages with Pure Prairie League. And I think our first one coming up is with uh, Orleans. No, it's a, a Amazing Rhythm Aces. And uh, Firefall, we have great shows with them and uh, you know i've known jock forever yeah jock bartley and uh so it's a lot of fun because we get to see friends musician friends and we get to see uh audience friends who who come to see us every time the only bad part is traveling these days is so difficult you know um, you go to the airport you you get in line take off your shoes and strip down and you get through that line and then you got to stand in line to get on the airplane and then you get off the airplane you got to stand in line and got to stand in line to get your bags and then you stand in line to get your rent a car and then you go to the hotel and stand in line to get your hotel room and yeah. you know, it takes well it really literally takes 12 hours for 
me to get from the cabin here to wherever the show is. 12 hours of traveling. So, um, you know, it, every show is a three-day experience because you have the day before and the day after yeah. and then the day of the show. And uh, it's, it's pretty hectic. It's pretty tiresome doing that. Uh, if we were touring like Eric Clapton or the Eagles, I, I, the only time I've ever been mad at Timothy B. Schmidt was, and this wasn't too long ago, he was talking about the Eagles and all that. And he said, I really appreciate it because I can't imagine getting on a commercial airplane again. I just, <laughs> oh, I just, I, going for the throat, you know. Yeah. Every time I'm in line at Southwest, you know, I think of Timothy and uh, bless his heart. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so it's, it's, that's the part I don't like. That's the part. I remember in the seventies, our roadies used to roll up to the airplane on the concourse in our in our vans yeah. and load the gear off onto the airplane. Wow. Oh. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Things have changed. Yeah, and they're probably going to change again. Um, you know, after yeah. all this, who knows? After we're kind of vaccinated and stuff, it's going to be that much longer yet getting on planes and. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I hope I hope that we can get on planes by uh, June because it's where are we playing? We're playing in Florida, I think. Anyway, that's a long drive from here. Yeah, yeah. I hope so too. So, any any plans for uh, Poco to do any more recording um, in the near near future? I I don't think so because one, where's the market? All these all the records that bands like us are doing our, I mean, James Taylor isn't selling records. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, there's just, the audience is a different audience now. They've grown up. And uh, I don't think uh, people my age spend much time on Spotify. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. But uh, I just don't see a big, it, they call them vanity projects, as you know yeah. now. And, and uh, I'm a little past vanity. Uh, I, I'm still writing. I have a solo record deal with a label called Blue Alon that I really love. I love those people, and I, I'm really happy with the solo record I put out. It's called Waiting on the Sun. Um, and so if anything I would do, and I'd probably do it with the Poco guys, uh, you know, a couple of songs, because everyone's releasing just a couple of songs these days, a single yeah. or an EP at the most, you know. I might do that, but uh, I, I don't know. I'm kind of, this whole thing knocked the wind out of me as far as, uh, looking towards that kind of a, a future. Yeah, no, I understand that. And what about producing? Uh, do you like wearing a producing hat a lot or that wasn't your thing? No. No. I, well, I, I, you know, we produced Poco records for 30 years. Even when we had a produce, producer listed, a lot of times they weren't there. Um, so I have a lot of experience doing that, but uh, it's not something I enjoy. I like playing live. I think that's really great. I really enjoy that. And uh, like I say, at my age, it's that cooking and fishing. So that's perfect. <laughs> Not necessarily in that order. Not necessarily. In that. <laughs> so we'll wrap up in a couple more questions. I really appreciate your time. It's been some great stories. Okay. And uh, I know you've mentioned uh, one question I like to ask everybody. Uh, you know, you mentioned all these great places you've played uh, over the years. Is there anywhere out there, whether it's a, a venue or a country or any place that you haven't played that you've always wanted to? I would love to play Telluride in Colorado. Yeah, yeah. You know, because I'm a Colorado boy. Yeah. And uh, we played all over Colorado, but never played Telluride. 
Um, and uh, we, we've tried and been turned down a number of times, and so just quit trying. But uh, that would be, that would be on, that's on my bucket list. Yeah, that would be a good one for sure. Um, and last question, uh, and this one I like to throw out to the musicians. If you had to leave uh, the house there, you've got a lot of guitars behind you and instruments. If you had to hypothetically leave the house quickly and only could take one instrument with you, which one would it be? It might be this one. Can you see that one? Yeah. yeah I can see That's that. a, a, Gruen, a Gruen guitar that uh, Jimmy Messina bought six of them, I think, when we were doing our reunion record in the late 80s. And he gave one to Randy Meisner, gave one to me, and he kept the rest, that rascal. And uh, so anyway, they're, they're uh, really rare guitars and uh, very expensive guitars. And this one here has the signature of every major uh, member of, of Poco. Oh, wow. It has Timothy B. Schmidt on there. He's right there by the bridge. Yeah. Me, Paul Cotton, Jimmy Messina, George Grantham, Randy Meisner, which was a hard one to get, uh, Richie Fure. So all the big eight or whatever it is, yeah. uh, uh, Jack Sundard, you can see there. That's probably my, no, I have two, the, the other, the Martin on the other wall is the other one. I'd have to have one in each hand. That's the first acoustic guitar I ever bought when I went to LA. And, you know, we're sitting in Richie's little cottage he had in Laurel Canyon and like Neil would come by and he, he was just getting ready to record his first record, which, by the way, has George Grantham playing drums and Jimmy Messina playing bass. Oh, wow. He didn't give him credit on the record, which really broke the guy's hearts, but uh, yeah. it's it's George on uh, Down by the River. Oh. So uh, anyway, they all had these Martins, these great Martins, and I, I ha really hadn't had history with acoustic guitars. And so I went out and I, I bought that one in 1968. It's a 68 Martin. Is it a D35 or S35? I forget. So those two guitars, and I played that on every Poco record that has acoustic guitar, wow. has that one on it. So uh, those two, I've thought about this. If <laughs> there yeah. was something, I would grab those two guys and head out the door. I might have to, I'd grab that steel guitar, but it's too heavy. heavy yeah. <laughs> if you had a couple extra minutes, come back and grab that. <laughs> I'd make Mary carry that. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. In uh, cooking, uh, we'll, just, we'll wrap up on that. Um, okay. Uh, what would you like cooking wise? Are you uh, uh, you a good chef, or you uh, talk about that? Talk about your your cooking likes. Uh, well, no, I, I I can cook pretty well. I, yeah. I I spend a lot of time watching YouTube's and then redo. Oh, that's yeah. the house phone. Yeah, get that, Mary. <laughs> She's got. It. But uh, you know, I, I do like a mussel, which is not a real Missouri dish. Mussels in a curry verbois. And, uh, you know, some outside the stuff, salmon, salmon wrapped in uh, phyllo dough and spices. Yeah. And uh, for Thanksgiving and Christmas, there's always the, uh, the uh, oh, what's that liqueur? Uh, Grand Meunier. Grand Meunier, yeah. I make my Grand Meunier uh, turkey. So I have, you know, I've got a few things that I, I call on that work out really good. Well, it's, it's funny because now uh, you get to a point where touring um, is great. Doing the show is great, but where you eat while you're on tour, it's just as important as the gig itself. <laughs> you nailed it. You nailed it. That's, that's probably the biggest thing I miss about being on the road is all these great restaurants. You know, in every city we have restaurants that we like to go to. And uh, I'm a big sushi person and my favorite sushi restaurants in each place are Cajun like, uh, you know, in Dallas there. 
which I probably couldn't think of the name of that either. Um, but yeah, I, I miss those restaurants big time. It's I mean, where we live, we live, it's a Missouri Hicks. It's a big restaurant and it's a, all the barbecue, barbecue yeah. you can stand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's great. That's the part I miss about touring is I know every city where the their spot I'm going to go yeah. eat, that's, you plan everything around that. Isn't that, see, that's a, a sign of the times. I noticed that about 20 years ago. Used to be we'd have these little black books, <clears throat> as you know, and uh, it'd be, oh, remember Janine in South Dakota, and you remember, you know, and we'd have phone numbers and names on. Yeah. And now it's now it's restaurants. Dan, you remember that Papa Do's there in Dallas? You know, it's uh, it, how life has changed. I know, and I think all the time they have all these uh, television shows with all on the Food Network and all these so popular. Oh, and, yeah. they, and they should be hosted by musicians because they know the best places to eat by far. <laughs> oh, that's- yeah, that's you're right. Mm-hmm. You're right. Step aside, Guy Fieri. Yes, that's right. Well, thank you very much for uh, spending the time uh, on the podcast. It was fascinating chatting with you, and I'm a big fan. And uh, um, I warned you. I warned you. I've been locked up so long. I just saw these. Can't stop talking. Oh, it's great. I still am still laughing about the the Vince Gill story. <laughs> it's great. Oh, it was hilarious. <laughs> but he troopered through it. He's a pro. Yeah. Oh, he's great. Well, thanks again, and I really appreciate uh, the time, and hopefully we'll get back to touring, and if you're in this area, I'd love to come and uh, uh, come see you. I, sounds good to me. I'll see you then. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Yeah.